so we've been walking through this uh, theme we're calling Rise, which by the way, if we're joining online, love to welcome you here to our gathering at our mission campus. If you're at the Reardon campus, man, so good to be with you. And I just, you know, want to say it's always a privilege to get to share his word. As we continue this theme, we're calling Rise. We've been walking through this, this theme together and I, I've named this passage, this message, the original life, because what I want to suggest to you in our time here is that Jesus will challenge us. This faith journey will challenge us to embrace the original life God's trying to create in each one of us. That he is trying to do something original in each one of our lives. And the decision we'll be presented with time and time again is whether or not we'll courageously step into what he is doing that is unique or if we try to impersonate what we think is acceptable. And it's a, it's a real tension. It's a real tension point. It's one that I have to say I, I, have, I am in process with. Nowhere near arriving at. But I was reminded of an incident happened to me a number of years ago. I was in my early 20s. I think I was around 22. And I got the opportunity to share at a youth camp with a number of other students besides our own youth group. And other groups were there. It was kind of, a, it, was, it was, at that point, it would be the largest audience I, I was able to share with. And I remember being given the theme, the topic, and being very excited. And I wrote down my notes, and I, I had a sense of what I wanted to say and how, you know, how, how this theme was supposed to kind of unfold through me a little bit. And so I wrote that down, and I, and I was so excited. I committed it to memory. And, and I, I, I tried to, you know, think about not, not having to reference anything, just kind of being able to be there, be present. And, and for some reason, on the way to camp, I felt something different kind of just internally, I started feeling insecure. Because though I knew what I wanted to say, and I was clear on what I, I had to say, I wasn't clear on how I wanted to say it. And around that time, I had taken a liking to somebody, uh, another communicator that I, had, I, I became, began to admire. And I remember watching them. I remember hearing their kind of vocal intonations, their mannerisms, watching every single move that they did. And, and just subconsciously, I made a decision on the way to this retreat that I knew what I was going to say. I was going to say what I originally said, but I was going to say it as if I was that guy. And I decided I'm going to try to do my best impersonation of that guy. Now, before you conclude, easily so, that that guy was Pastor Terry, I want to tell you, it wasn't, okay? It was somebody else. But I remember stepping onto that moment and, and, and doing my best impersonation of this communicator that I came to admire. And, and I said what I needed to say, and it seemed like things went over well, but you never really know, and things like that. They, the majority of these students didn't even know me, really. And so I remember stepping off and going over to the camp director and debriefing a little bit, and he, he and I had had a, a relationship at that point, several years now, had developed. And I remember him giving me some feedback. And he was gentle. It may not sound gentle, but he was. He said, Lewis, you know, you did a really good job impersonating. And then he named the person. <laughs> he called me out. He says, you know, I, um, I look forward to the day where I get to hear from you. Where it's Lewis up there. And... Uh, you know, it's like, how would you feel? It's like, I got called out. I, I remember just kind of being like, oh. And he looked at me, 
And then he said something that I, I decided to write down later. He says, you'll get there. Uh, but you need more confidence believing that God is doing something original in your life. And when you get to that place, that confidence will help you give up trying to be someone else. And he just let it be. Patted me on the back, smiled at me, thanked me, and walked away. And I remember those words, you know, they were so precise. It was like he had a scalpel and he just went in. And on the other hand, it felt like a knife stabbed me. And they, those words echoed within, they still do. But I share that because it was a real moment in my life that kind of brings to the surface the reality, listen, we are all joiners naturally. We, by our very nature of being human, we, we're, we tend to become tribal so easily. And I think today, more than previous generations, what we have become as a people are experts of reading the room, of understanding perceptions, knowing what is required on the outward. We, we are so image-driven. We really are. Even those of us who don't have social media still feel the impact and pressure of needing to conform and portray the image of whatever role we're seeking to portray. Whether that it would be a father or a husband or a mother or a wife or a friend or a neighbor or a cook or whatever it might be, an artist, whatever it might be, we will feel the pressure of what that looks like. And we will feel the tension of stepping into that image even if we don't know that we are that image. It's a, it's a funny thing. I've grown up in it. I was born here. I love the city. I truly do. And I, I think this is a city where people do not like to conform. People from all over the country, indeed the world, come here looking to break out. It's that city. It's one of them at least. And yet the pressure to not conform becomes what we try to conform into. The nonconformist, the unconventional, the outlier. It is what so many of us feel pressure to pursue and we have competing desires and cravings. I don't know if you hear me, but we all long to be authentic, sincere, real, original. All of us do. At the same time, we want to belong and be accepted. And so how do we navigate that? How do we walk this out? In a way, it's not like perceptions aren't important, but how do we walk that tension out of not forsaking the originality of what God is doing within our own lives? See, this, this is a question that if we have to deal with societally in our culture, we certainly will have to deal with in our own church community. In fact, we're going to see it. The first church in Jerusalem was forced to wrestle with this dynamic. If you open up your handout, I'd love for us to just kind of step into this passage that was in so many ways, it garnered the attention of all of those who heard about it, certainly those who witnessed it. We're told in verse 1 of Acts 5, there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. And he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount of, with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. 
This is an interesting thing. We have to understand a couple things first. If we haven't been here, especially if we weren't here a week ago, it'd be good to go check that out, by the way, on, either on podcasts or online. But we have to know this, that there was something of a spontaneous movement of God in the early church that created just radical generosity, where people decided because of what God was doing in their own heart, because of what Jesus had impacted their soul to such a degree, they decided they were going to, some people in the community decided to sell off property and give the entirety of what they garnered from that kind of selling and give it to the church. And they would give it on behalf of the needs of those within the community. And they would bring it to the apostles. And the, the sense is that this was something spontaneous that occurred. No one, no one required it. Wealthy members, wealthier members of the community were, were participating in this and in many ways resourcing the movement of Jesus in those early days. And it seems that the ambiguous nature of it, the lack of clarity as to what one is expected to do, created tension. It's only human. It's only natural. It created tension, a, a degree of comparison within some of those who may not have been willing or able to participate. All of a sudden, how one looks in this dynamic starts to matter to certain people. And it seems that Ananias and Sapphira either were, they, it, well, let's put it this way, they definitely felt pressure. And their decision was... Um, rather than to actually do what everyone else was doing, either some would say for greed, I personally think for lack of ability, and yet desiring the same level, because in a community so tight-knit, those who were able to participate at that level would garner some degree of influence, admiration. There's so much there. And all of a sudden, Ananias Sapphira, they decided, for whatever reason, that instead of actually doing it, they would pretend to do so. And we're told in verse 3 that Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan, who Jesus, by the way, said he is the father of all lies, the originator of all lies. Why did you let the great liar fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. And verse 4 is fascinating. He says, the property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. He says, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. You understand this, right? How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. You understand you were lying to God. And it's almost as if he, what he's saying is, listen, it, let's put it this way. Ananias and Sapphira read the room. They understood. They felt attention. They thought that's what they needed to step into. Maybe they weren't able. Maybe they weren't willing. Whatever re reason, they decided to fake it until they made it. Peter read them. And he said, I'm not going to take it. No, you don't understand what's going on here, Ananias. He, first of all, you were never instructed to do this. No one ever directly asked you to go sell your property and get, it was yours. You didn't have to. You didn't have to pretend. After, secondly, after selling it, you didn't, have to, you didn't have to give us all. You didn't have to give us any. That was your call. Why did you do that? 
Why did you do that? It's almost as if you get the sense that God was doing something original in the hearts of some of the people within that community. And we're not told why, but this couple chose to ignore what God was doing within them. And rather than pay attention to what God was doing in their own lives and in their own heart, they attempted to step into someone else's original moment by pretending that they also were prompted. And Peter said, that, that's, that's not good. And perhaps if they did lie to God, which is what Peter said they did, it began with them lying to themselves, convincing themselves that God wasn't doing anything special or unique or significant in their own lives. So why even investigate that? It's so clear what God's doing to them. So I'm going to go ahead and pretend to be just like them. And in verse 5, the consequences are severe. We're told as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and he passed away. He died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some of the young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. They obviously were struck with deep fear. The results of pretending were severe. And I think it's worth noting, just to pause just for a minute here, take a step back from this account and just put a couple things, just, I just, we need to say this. Listen, we're witnessing here a statement. A statement. Uh, it, certainly, it was not the case that, how do, how do I put this? If you, okay, if you lie, you die. Didn't become a thing. Okay, it didn't continue to become a thing. This is kind of one of those one and done situations. And if it was, listen, it, it seems this judgment was meant to communicate the seriousness of taking something that God was doing in people's lives casually or cavalierly. That it was almost as if there was a statement being made in this birth formation place of this movement, of this gathering of God's people. It's almost as if God was trying to communicate something through Ananias and Sapphira's situation. That in every other system in the world, everywhere else, we figure out what is going on and we adapt to it. And we step into what we think and perceive is acceptable. And there we do fake it. And it's almost as if God was saying, not here. Not here. Uh, it, it's, it, it, don't, listen, it's, Better to be sincere and genuine. Better to be sincere in this place. Always better. That, that seems to be the tone. This is, this is actually, this is the safe place. It's not needed. You didn't have to do this, Ananias. You didn't have to pretend. No one, better to just be honest. Here it's supposed to be different. It's, it is different. And we're told that about three hours later in verse seven, 
His wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, what, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, well, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? I don't understand your logic. The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and she also died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her aside beside her husband. It, this was one of the interesting, fascinating passages. One of them, it just, it grips you. It grips your attention. It grabs you. It's like this couple ended up stepping into this moment, not knowing what they were actually doing. They, they suffered the severest of consequences. And Peter, all the while, is basically having a conversation with them, not understanding. Don't you? Don't you understand? You come to this gathering and you know that we are worshiping the living God who sees everything. And you somehow concluded, which by the way, is so normal for us to do. And he's saying to her, you've concluded somehow that when you pretend with his people, that you can somehow mask it and hide it from the one you came to worship. I don't understand that, is what he is trying to say. And in my mind, it's almost as with compassion that he's asking this. Yeah. It, listen, it's true. It, I have to reiterate it. You lie or die, thank you, Jesus, that's not true. Thank you, Jesus, it's not a thing. Thank you, Jesus, his mercies are new every morning, that his grace abounds beyond anything we step into that it is with open arms of love that he receives us anytime and every time. Thank you, Jesus, that he sees all and he doesn't condemn. But this was certainly a cautionary tale. It was a cautionary tale meant to echo throughout, not just that community, but I would say the rest of time, saying what? It would actually, years later, James, who was one of the primary leaders of this early church, would write, the following, and he said this to them. He says, listen, I asked him to put this up there. He says, temptation comes from our own desires and which entice us and they drag us away, which is a fascinating way to think about this. What James is not saying is we are surrounded by temptation. No. He says we are inhabited with temptation. And what happens is the surroundings or our thoughts or our desires end up pulling on the thread. He says, he says it, then when, when they entice us, if we allow it to entice us and we allow it to give it room, you know what happens? We get dragged. And that is the myth of temptation, that we somehow have the ability to control it. And James is saying, no, 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 no. It ends up dragging us. And over time, that desire manifests itself. He says, these desires, they give birth to sinful actions. Now, just so we understand what he is saying here, sin is categorized as anything outside of what God says is right. And so he says, listen, these desires give birth to an action. Which, by the way, a wrong desire is not sin. A wrong action is. And... James says, if we don't cut that short or address things 
and we start to create a habit around those things, those actions, and we start to create a way of being around those actions, and we start to create a way of life around those actions, it's like we're planting a tree. And this tree grows. He says, when sin is allowed to grow, you know what happens? It, it grows into a tree, but the fruit doesn't give life. The fruit is death. And so, thank you, Jesus, we'll never suffer the same consequences Ananias and Sapphira suffered. That is not the case for us. However, the caution is that whenever we choose to step into actions or a way of life that is outside of what God says is right, let's make no mistake about it. Something inside of us dies. No question. Our soul suffers the fruit of that. We end up tasting that. And this reality so gripped the early church. We're told in verse 11 that great fear, look at this, gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade which is the exterior of the temple. But no one else dared join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. It's almost as if there is something internally that happens in the community. They saw this event. They heard about this event. The apostles, Peter primarily, ends up getting elevated to a point where they start to recognize something of a growing sense of influence and authority set on him. And so they decide they don't want to be, they don't, they, they don't know what is, what's going to happen. It's, it's almost like they're struck with some degree of reverence and trepidation internally and God continues to move in their midst and we're told that yet in verse 14 more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord crowds both men and women you see this juxtaposition internally they get the realization oh this is a community where we need to be real and honest and truthful where we need to be sincere and genuine and that internally creates a little bit of trepidation externally to everyone who is not a part of the community they get a sense of that they get a sense of something truly authentic happening and they want in do you see it they want that they want to taste that. They want it for themselves. And so more men and women, crowds of men and women, start to join the community while the community is wrestling with the reality that they need courage to take off the masks, to let down the clothing that pretends to be real. And it's a fascinating dynamic. We're told in verse 15 that as a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. He almost gets elevated to a legendary status. If but his shadow, it seems God would do something. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, all around, bringing their sick and those possessed by dark spirits, and they were all healed. There was an amazing movement of God in the midst of this warning and correction. Here in this community, it's supposed to be the safest place to come as you are. This is the place where you can truly come as yourself, and experience miraculous things that God is able to heal and God is able to create wholeness 
And God is able to meet. God is able to speak. If for that alone, this is an account worth visiting. But I would like to take the remaining minutes we have here and unpack a couple thoughts for us. I just want to put it on the board. I think what we're seeing here is one, one thing needs to be stated is that Jesus' work in our soul, it has similarities with others, but it is always unique. It has similarities in terms of how God works with us. But He is always doing something unique to us. Unique. Why? Because He's an artist at heart. The first introduction we're given to Him in the Scriptures is Him as Creator. He is a Creator. And we know this, listen, wholeness is His goal. Wholeness, by the way, is another way of saying that he longs to integrate every part of our lives to such a degree that it becomes the same wherever it is put. That is his goal for us. Strength is the external expression of wholeness. It is how it will be perceived. When his work is actually taking hold of us, wholeness increases. You know what is perceived? Some degree of strength comes out. We don't have to try. Grace is his medicine. Truth is his tool. It is how he chisels. It's how he paints. It's how he writes. Love is his clothing. It's what he covers us with. It's what he embraces us with. And our church is a church of artists. Some of you have created amazing things. I admire everyone that I get to know. One thing they all hold in common, no, no true artist likes duplicates. Originality, authenticity, beauty in East peace, unique expressions through each poem each story told, each painting, each drawing rendered. There's a desire. You know, there's a desire. I don't want to copy. I want to see what's new. And I'll tell you what. You know why that's there? Because the one who created us feels the same way about each one of us. He longs to create something original in each one of our lives. How do we discover that? I want to suggest that we discover that not by looking around us, but by looking within. And making this question one of the daily questions of our lives. Lord, what are you doing in my soul? What is the masterpiece you're creating inside of my life? What are you writing? What are you painting? What are you saying? What are you creating? What story are you telling? And we start to ask and pay attention to that question, we will discover that God has been hard at work this entire time. You know what it feels like a lot of times when we sense where he's putting his finger? It feels uncomfortable. It feels nerve-wracking. 
A lot of times it feels like anxiety rather than peace. Because he's moving things around. And he's shuffling the pieces. And he's getting into stuff that we're not comfortable with. And he's shedding light in other areas. And he's, he's pointing certain things out. And he's bringing them into the open. And he's, he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm working. I'm hard at work in your soul. I'm doing something. I'm creating something. It's messy. I know it's hard. It's uncomfortable. I know. I know you're nervous. I know. But trust me, this is going to be so good. See, when we understand that and we start to surrender and welcome him, we discover there is something truly beautiful to this life journey with God. And we start to recognize that he doesn't address the surface stuff. He really doesn't. He addresses the core of who we are. And that changes everything else. But we have to know this. If that's true, Jesus' work requires our participation for transformation to occur. He requires us to get in the mess with him. To put our hands to the clay with him. To be willing to be molded into be willing to allow him into the areas of our lives that we'd rather nobody else step into. Look at this. Look at what uh, Paul told the Philippians. He says, listen, I want you to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those two words essentially mean reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Recognize that when God is doing something in your life, don't treat it casually. Don't minimize it. Don't toss it aside. No, no, no. Pay attention. He says, listen, because it's God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You understand he's doing something truly good. And, and the best advice I was given, the best advice I was given, especially younger in my years, was, listen, if there is dissonance going on, if there is something of disruption going on inside of you, pay attention. Because it might be that God is actually wanting to speak to you. It, the dissonance might be him interrupting you, stepping into your life. And it might look like discomfort through conscience, discomfort through his word. A lot of times we think we read his word and it will always soothe us and comfort us. That's sometimes true. Sometimes we read his word and we get a little more agitated and anxious. And we get a little bit more, more disturbed. And we almost sometimes, there have been times I'll read it and I'll look over my shoulder like, did you hear him say that? Because I hope not, because that kind of reveals my soul a little bit, and I'm not comfortable with that. See, that will happen. And if that's the case, we have to understand this. That echo, that trembling in our soul is probably the closest thing. In fact, I'll say this. That is probably what his voice starts to sound like. And it's more powerful than anything audible. And to be sensitive to, be, to develop a sensitivity to his movement in our lives is what it looks like to participate with him and to not pretend with him, but to invite him in. Before any, we have to know this, before any external crisis of truth in our lives occurs, God will seek to deal with us privately. He never longs to embarrass or expose us. But he loves us too much. He loves us way too much to allow us. And he structured life in such a way where if we do not respond to his internal promptings, 
If, if the internal alarms are not enough to get our attention, His love for us is so profound that He will allow us to experience a crisis of truth where it's no longer avoidable. Why? Because He is the Father sitting on the edge of the road wondering when His Son will come home. Because he is the man sitting at the well, speaking to the woman, saying, tell me the truth and come and experience water that will satisfy your soul. Because he is the man who bends down and tells the woman who was exposed, I don't condemn you. I don't, I forgive you. But don't have to suffer this again. You're, you're good to go, you're free to go. Just don't go back to that. We have to know this. When we recognize his work inside of us, this is the last point, we'll start to recognize all his work around us. Paul said it this way. I've discovered the secret. There's a secret to this journey. I've discovered it. He says, um, I could be wealthy or poor. I could be uh, feasting or starving. I could be in the midst of the greatest place or in the midst of the darkest place. And yet something has occurred in my soul. I've discovered that Jesus has done such a wonderful thing inside of me that I am filled with contentment. And that contentment starts to show up no matter where I'm at. He says, he says because of his work inside of me, I now see him work all around me all around me. And all of a sudden, he says, you know what? When, when true contentment shows up, deep joy is present. Assurance is there. Security is there. Confidence rooted in truth, not in what we think we're supposed to be or step into courage to face peer pressure or the challenges that will inevitably come. Humility to admit faults. Why can we admit faults and be authentic about it? Why? Because his grace abounds. Because our faults and our weaknesses and our, and our failures will never cancel out his love for us. Because he is the one who perpetually singles us out as one who will be loved, loved, embraced. He sacrificed it all for us. And then when we receive him in our lives, he is the one who says, all right, I want to do such a wonderful thing inside of you that you'll start to recognize my fingerprints all around you. And you'll start to see what's going on inside of you. It's happening in your neighborhood. It's happening in your work environment. It's happening in your relationships. It's happening maybe in the darkest place of you, maybe in the darkest pockets of the city. He is at work. Let's make no mistake about it. He's doing something original inside each one of us. He's doing something original in this community. He's doing something original in this city, in this year, in this generation. We get to decide. Will we embrace it and let his artistry rise up or not? I pray we respond and we say yes. And when we do, Others will want in. They will want in. Because we all crave that. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. Closing song, but I would love to just pray. God, thank you. You are the, the one who is gentle and loving and kind. 
you are truthful and merciful and gracious. I pray that you would help us respond to the promptings you put inside of us and that you would help us embrace the original, unique, beautiful thing you want to do through our lives. You are welcome here, God. Carry out your good work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.